0: Oh yeah, I got a I got a whole list here of questions. Uh, I mean, we just dump straight into it. Uh, thanks for coming, guys. This is
1: Hi, guys. How's
0: it going? This is Blank <laughs> from Morgan Stanley. Uh, he works as an equity analyst on the sell side, so we'll we'll dive into some stuff. Do you want to give like an overview of what that means?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, the sell side is a bit of a behemoth, but essentially, you have we have a load of clients, um, hedge funds, asset managers, pension funds. Um, and there are various categories of, of these investors. There are those that have more of a long only bias that are looking to generate um, returns over a long period of time, typically buying equities and holding them. And then you also have um, funds which are, do a combination of um, that long only approach and also shorting equities. Um, so the platform hedge funds like Citadel, Millennium, etc. And our job is to sell research on equities to these clients. And essentially we have to, um develop a view on this particular stock within our sector that of, of specialism that they should that we think will outperform the market or outperform the sector um and vice versa on the downside underperform the market and our job is to come up with new original ideas for for alpha um so that to generate excess returns sorry yeah um, so that clients can um can better inform their investment decisions um to generate returns for their shareholders if they're a fund or people that you know contribute capital to a fund um, so that's basically a high-level equity researchers and so we do we write research and then we also publish our own models where we forecast you know things like sales growth margins that sort of stuff.
0: I think I had a bunch of questions on that actually like how do you actually go about doing the forecasting how do you model these things how do you read the statements well we'll dive into those in a bit <laughs> but uh it's kind of an interesting dynamic for these guys just because like I'm buy side you're sell side so we interact quite often yeah like we had a meeting with someone from Bank of America, I can't remember his name, but he's quite well known in the the fixed income market. And he was basically pitching his ideas about what to buy in European credit, for example, just because Europe is fucking battered, right? Like (laughs) Europe is fucked, the UK is fucked, everything's fucked, but it's cheap. So the idea was, because it's so cheap, what do you actually want to buy? Because it's like, in case people don't know, European credit is like company corporate debt. And they're trading very similar to like 2008 levels when they really shouldn't be because they're very solid financially and they're yep. they have a lot of buffer room in their margins so even if they get hit with increased rates and this kind of stuff they might still recover and their names are being battered in the fixed income market so they're very cheap yeah and so we had these guys come in and basically talk about this stuff uh, which I guess kind of brings us on to the next thing which is like what sector do you cover in yeah sure things?
1: so we cover a sector uh, which is very broad we cover leisure um, and there's sort of uh my boss who's the md like i said on the floor he's sort of the titan of the floor and yeah. then we also have a second guy in command who's an ed and he does gambling <laughs> which is very much you know the hedge funds platforms that look at that although everyone else is like doesn't tick the esg box so yeah um and then the stocks that i look at are um hotels food service and uh, contract catering slash content catering and um and another sort of area we have is cruise lines, which is a lot more a lot more of the focus there is on leverage and debt because these companies are well, hemorrhaging cash flow um, yeah. and they're having to constantly raise equity. So if you look at certainly um, we publish weekly is like um, uh, we do like a research note on a particular company or like a sector wide note that goes out every Friday, and that's just to obviously say something interesting each week and it keeps you fixed on that deadline. Yeah, and. Um, if you look at like the cruise lines, for example, they've just derated far more than anything else. Like out of all the coverage on our floor, right? So across all the sectors, you know, Carnival, which is our like, bottom pick, they've like raised equity four times yeah. since COVID. Yeah. But, like you know, it's like ninety-nine percent drop in share price from.
0: Do you think that's more country. of a COVID issue? Like, do you think it's because of COVID these cruise yeah, lines are having Yeah, they're coverage. just
1: structurally impaired. Like yeah. people just are not traveling by cruise anymore. Yeah. Um, they're just not getting the footfall, they're massively cutting price because there's just so much oversupply yeah. Um, yeah. and they're trying to generate like onboard ticket revenue, but it's just not working. They've obviously got a backlog of people that would have gone during COVID, but haven't and have saved up all of those tickets. So then yeah. they're getting people going on the ship that aren't actually paying anything because um, they paid three years ago and of course you need cash now when you're yeah. <laughs> debt constrained. Yeah. I actually so don't know
0: important. much about cruise liners, but I know, like, like from, from an ignorant point of view, I would think because we have, like, an aging population, wouldn't that be better for cruise liners?
1: You'd think if people were living longer, you know, typically it's the elderly yeah, age class that go on cruises. But they're the ones that are most concerned about COVID and the infections and haven't moved on from that. Fair enough. Um, that makes sense. So, yeah, it's they're really struggling. Um, and look, I think we have a lot of UK stocks in our coverage and there's just complete apathy there. It doesn't matter, like you say, how cheap these things are. Yeah. Like I think what some of the companies we cover are like pub stocks, people wouldn't have heard of and they're trading at like eight times PE, you know, like yeah. like 0. 0.2 times an asset value, you know, it's yeah. just ridiculous, like lower than they were in the financial crisis. Yeah. Yeah. And still no one gives a fuck, you know, it's like, no
0: one wants to touch sterling no. assets right now. Yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah,
1: it's, 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 uh, it's quite hard. Um, I think really, you look for businesses that are defensive in this environment that have like yeah. predictable revenue and cash flow and are defensive. Yeah, um, yeah. And investors overpiling into them. So, you know, a lot of the farmer stocks obviously have outperformed and their multiples have accelerated, right? Um, and then yeah, these other things like Pubs, no one cares and they'll trade it point two times now. So. Yeah. Crazy.
0: No, I, I know like a lot of sterling assets are insanely battered, but there are some like micro plays. I don't know if you've heard about like how. In the debt markets, for example, you have U.S. issuers that issue in sterling. Yeah. So you'll have something like, I don't know if Nestle has sterling bonds, but you'll have like Nestle issuing bonds in sterling. And they're a really good company financially, right? So you would think they're solid, but their sterling name just got battered because the pound crashed. Yeah. And the pound is at a historical low. So people are more comfortable taking those kind of bets in fixed income because they're like, well, pound's cheap. I can buy the stock and convert my dollars into fucking pounds, get way more stock than I would normally and then you just hedge out the pound risk using forwards. Yeah. And uh, that's a lot of yeah. I've heard a lot of interest on that side, but that's yeah. getting crowded out now too. Yeah. Because it was the most obvious trade to do if you don't want to touch sterling, you buy the companies that are US based that <laughs> issue in sterling and now it's just fucked and it's back to normal. So, yeah, it's
1: yeah, it's I a think lot of fun. I think what's happened in in the UK is I mean, it's a real shame what's happened. Like obviously it's going to impact a lot of people, but it's definitely overdone. Like I look at the damage that like this trust has had and she's <laughs> moved on yeah. and everything. It's like the damage she's done is because of the market reaction. Yeah. You know, it's like the budget itself, don't get me wrong, like there were unfunded tax cuts and it wasn't good policy, like in this environment. Of course, people are going to hate on her for doing that. Yeah. But like more just the communication was the problem. And it was just sort of like absolutely no accountability to how the numbers were going to add up or yeah. whether they're, or, and just like shutting down the OBR and all these independent forecasters. It's just like, yeah, we're not going to. We're not going to use them and that's the message that was bad that got sent and I
0: think. yeah like i think i find that really odd how like you announce this giant policy on all these expenditures you're going to spend so much money going straight back to keynesian <laughs> economics and you're like this is going to solve a lot of problems and you're not going to tell anybody how you're going to fund it yeah that was the dumbest thing i've ever seen yeah like obviously markets are going to react that way because <laughs> yeah. they're like you're broke you have no money <laughs> like okay. how are you going to fund this policy and they're like, oh, we'll tell you in three months. Yeah, just give us some time. Yeah, that was ridiculous.
1: Yeah, um, I think it was just also like, unfortunately, there was just a lot of arrogance there. Like she just was of the view that like, oh, I know better than like all these people that are in the Treasury that have been doing this job for years. Yeah. They don't actually know what they're talking about. Yeah. I know what I'm talking about just because. And the other approach that I found quite annoying was like, if something hasn't worked in the past, it was because it wasn't radical enough. Yeah. regardless it's like it's almost like trying something on a smaller scale if it worked would have some effect right it'd have a smaller effect it wouldn't have no effect yeah the the solution isn't to take a policy that doesn't work and 10 exit you know that doesn't change the outcome it was so
0: stupid Yeah. (laughs)
1: like the day she announced that policy i remember like
0: all my bloomberg chats on the trading site were lighting up asking like oh when are the uk gonna go to the imf what's gonna <laughs> when are they gonna start defaulting? I didn't know the pounds and EM currency. Like the jokes you were just <laughs> out of the blue. It was, it was fucking hilarious to see that shit just explode in real time.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But was, I guess the bigger impact was obviously on the on the pension funds and you know the LDI. Per, well, yeah, liability driven investing. They should be so. okay now,
0: at least. Like the Bank of England like, gave them like what was it, two and a half weeks or so to yeah. fix their shit. Yeah. I think that's plenty of time like and they sold all their guilts right so they should be okay yeah and if they're not they probably deserve to fail anyway like (laughs) come on like how dumb could that be like yeah Mm. i I got so much beef for that (laughs) like the bank of england while we worked there by the way they just lost all their credibility yeah like they they, they're meant to be an independent institution they're like huh government fucked up pensions are gonna explode we got to do something yeah and so while they're trying to implement qc i sorry um quantitative tightening yeah they immediately also started qe on the long end as well yeah, yeah. it just made no it's, sense
1: the two objectives are clashing right they're trying yeah. to stimulate the they're trying to sorry bring inflation down and unwind their balance sheet and you know um
0: they're selling into a recession right so right. Like they're just going to fucking increase those um just, yeah this is going to be way worse
1: <laughs> yeah so they're there like oh we need to control inflation you know grocery inflation is 15 percent, which yeah Read the other day, and I was just like, "That's unheard of." You know, like, te- and it's like the markets every day, and inflation print comes out, you're like, "Well, I don't want to be long anything." You yeah, know, it's just going to get destroyed. Ten point one percent, that extra ten basis points. You know, yeah. Last week, this week, even, and then it was like carnage again. Um,
0: I don't know if you've seen this in your sectors as well, but like, or all the clients I speak to, they're just they're just holding cash. Yeah, everyone's holding cash. That's why every time there's a slightly positive news, you just see the markets blow up. Yeah, for no reason. Like, you shouldn't yeah. blow up for one slightly positive unemployment. Number, You know what I mean? Right, right. Like the central banks aren't going to care about one month-on-month print. They're going to look at consecutive prints. Yeah. But the market is so fucking strapped with cash and they're eager to just deploy that in any positive news they can. I feel like this. yeah, I feel like the bull market is going to be very aggressive when it does happen because of that. Yeah. Like when we had cash positions this high historically, right? Yeah, exactly. So the second there's any positive news, I wouldn't be surprised if things rally. Which I think that's a pretty good question. What are you doing in your personal accounts? What are you buying right now?
1: Yeah, so um, I, I've got to be honest. I am I'm still holding all cash. Like so I've literally taken the view. Of, like I'm not buying anything until next year. And I think that's maybe a bit irrational, but like there are companies that I look at and I think, oh, you know, they're good on a valuation perspective. But yeah, yeah. In the short run, as we all know, sentiment drives stock prices. Yeah. And at the moment, the sentiment is still really bad. People I talk to are still. I think a lot of people are reeling from just ginormous losses this year. Yeah. Um, it doesn't matter like. How, how good are the hedge fund. well if you are on like a really short term hedge fund you know like I said today, all that, they're still they're still up but like most people in the space asset managers long only are down a lot this yeah, year yeah. and they're just yeah. really I think unfortunately losses losses are felt as we know more that psychologically it's harder to take a loss than it hurts twice as much basically to take a loss than it does to yeah. feel, feel as good to get a win so, or gain and so I think people are reeling from that and the UK people are just still so negative on it. In Europe, in general, it's yeah. Um, yeah. I think it, or it's almost like you can try. Like I think our strategy guys they try and look at like valuations and say, oh, we've troughed here, or um, use examples of like intraday price action. Like as we saw with yeah um, in some days where the market would just shoot up, like you say, aggressively in the morning on a small piece of news, and then it would just decelerate the the second half of the day. Is no one wants to be in the market anymore? You know, within the, yeah. Whether within one day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So I think it's getting close, but I mean, I I just don't really have much faith or conviction in any of these, like, forecasters' abilities to say this is the bottom of the market, because we're in such a different environment to the past as well. Yeah. But we're not just in a normal demand down recession, we're in a high unemployment recession.
0: It's one of the weirdest recessions we're going into, right? Like, it's not very often where you go into a recession where inflation is really high, unemployment is incredibly strong, and the central bank is dealing with, like, a supply chain crisis that's slowly unwinding, plus an energy cost crisis, and then on top of that, they're trying to hike while not driving the economy into a severe recession. Yeah, like uh, Ben Broadbent the other day was. Oh, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, yeah. Like he doesn't want. Like he completely shot down the market's expectation of rate hikes, which were priced in at around 150 basis points for the next meeting. There's no way the bank of england is going to hike one and a half percent yeah no way yeah and so ben was like yeah we're not going to do that <laughs> i think the market's overshooting what we're actually going to do and then obviously they corrected but I, th- I think the number he said was like if we do hike what the market is pricing in we're going to shave off five percent of gdp yeah and uh yeah so like i think i think the bank of england is walking a fine line and i, I also
1: think, think they've just sort of been completely undermined by the government i mean the government has fucked borrowing costs to everyone yeah. all they've had to do is come and said unfunded tax cuts and they've done more than the bank England do in like six months of aggressively hiking right yeah like unfortunately mortgages are the main expense for a household this is another reason why I think people are still very cautious on the UK and yeah it's because like if you look at Europe and the rest of the world they've all had interest rates rise quite a lot and you know their mortgage costs for people when their fixed mortgage expires will you know they'll, they'll double right they'll have yeah. to end up paying 600 pound a month roughly more on average yeah yeah. So of course they're gonna have to cut back on other areas, like aggressively, yeah. right? And it's like inflation at ten percent was bad, but like the mortgages are a completely different ball game. You know, it's like yeah, it's, that's such a large part of someone's monthly spending.
0: Yeah, but I mean, for that
1: to go up six hundred pounds, you know, it has more of a detrimental impact from a consumption perspective than definitely 10% inflation, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's why my base case is that I mean, I think Sunak's definitely gonna get elected, right? Like there's there's it's pretty much he's already got the hundred votes that he needed to get in.
1: I don't know. What's going on Boris coming
0: back? Oh, no, Boris, man. That guy, it's such, it's only in the UK where someone could get fired for having a party during COVID and then someone else got elected by accident who was only in for two and a half weeks. She gets kicked out and the same guy was like, you know what? I'm going to come back. <laughs> like, it's the weirdest shit. Like,
1: and he's just there with, like, in the Dominican Republic and he's got this mate of his, I like, forget his name, like, <laughs> Duddingham or something. And yeah. they text him, he's like, hey, Dudders, I'm coming back. It's on. And I'm just like, this guy is so fucking far out of like any yeah. sort of reality that other people face.
0: I mean, he was in. He was con- he was a contender. Like he was second next to Sunak. I think Sunak got the hundred that he needed for votes. So yeah. I think it's going to be Sunak. But he was like really close. I think it was Sunak, Boris, and then Penny.
1: Penny's like completely out of it. Like she yeah. wasn't even getting fifty votes.
0: Yeah, Penny's out of it. But like, but do you
1: think Boris is out of it? Yeah, because I think
0: soon. Last time I checked, as of yesterday, he had over a hundred. He had guess, over a hundred. So, yeah. yeah, so I think he's gonna get elected, and I think what he's gonna do is definitely austerity. Yeah, and I think he's definitely gonna implement some sort of mortgage relief plan because next year is gonna be insanely difficult for people that are refinancing.
1: Yeah, like refinancing
0: at six percent. Yeah, that's fucking insane. Yeah. So to
1: give you a story, like I've had practical experience of this. Um, I was looking to buy a house in about April, or May. Like, not not in London. I can't afford it. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> but like. You know, somewhere basically in like the Midlands, it was just like an investment like a one hundred thirty thousand house. Sure. And the mortgage rate back then was two point six percent, fixed for five years. Yeah. <laughs> and I managed to get it at two point eight percent. Yeah. In early June and just completed on the house, so that's fixed for five years. That's great. But like, if the house had fallen through, it's, it wasn't a portable mortgage, so I would have they would have reevaluated the market conditions. Yeah. And I worked out the interest rate was six and a half percent. So it's more than double. Yeah. In four months. yeah, um, and that just would have made the house unaffordable. Like on top of rent and other expenses, I can't afford that. Yeah. Um, so you know, I think there's going to be a housing market correction. You can see it by the way, then another part of the floor if you sit next to us is um they cover um, uh, home builders. Yeah, oh yeah. I got, and, I gotta you know, like the Taylor Wimpy and then you look yeah. at the ones like personal that are really exposed to like um first time buyers yeah it's and they've just but everyone was it was funny because it was like that one little niche at the start of the sell-off where all the uk buyers were like oh but housing's safe you know bricks and mortar. it's like we learned nothing from the financial crisis yeah it's like they're really safe and then everyone was like yeah but every time interest rates have risen this much has been a housing correction you know and it's like every time the ha- stock market's corrected the fed has um been normalizing rates you know like yeah there are just these macro things the market just derates. it doesn't matter what sector you in. it doesn't matter how big the company's earnings are growing yeah it's still going to sell off, right, with the market. Yeah. And their sell-off has been ridiculous because everyone was too complacent. They all thought that, you know, like the housing market was secure. Yeah. And you're starting to see the signs now where like um, like new housing tra- transaction activity growth is slowing, yeah. starting to flatline, and then that will come through on prices. And then when it comes through on prices, it'll come through on construction. And then, you know, people obviously will struggle with repaying their mortgages as well. So that will yeah. have another downward impact. So I think... When it comes to like positioning in Europe, you have to think about like which sectors are sort of more early stage recovery sectors. Yeah, And also which companies are actually faring quite well. Like in our space, we have like, I don't know if you've heard, you know like Premier Inn, like the budget hotel, Premier Inn, they're nailing it. Like their numbers are like 30% above last year and they keep growing. And it's yeah. because in a downturn, people go to budget hotels, right? Yeah. And like their costs are, are half, like, sure they've got cost inflation, but it's half the rate of their revenue growth. And like, that they're still derating with the market. So when the market starts to like when people start to look at where their real value is, they move to that first rather than, you know, a company like a cruise line, which is never in my opinion, is, is going some of them will go bankrupt. Yeah. So like you have to do the analysis at a company level and you also have to think about if you're gonna buy an index, which sector might be more like early stage recovery or which rich geographies may have more room for recovery. Like, yeah I mean, everyone talks about China and who knows when's that, when that's going to recover, but maybe you could look at like another market, you know, like Korea or, you know, like other markets in Asia, Yeah, I mean, they have a lot of recovery potential. So yeah, you've got to be careful. Basically, it's, it's a dif- difficult market and if it's you're not prepared to lose market. money, then don't get involved. Yeah, I think, I think that's the best <laughs> advice, right? Like
0: if you don't want to lose your money, don't get into it. <laughs> All right. I'm going to go ahead and pull up some questions here. So Fritada asks, what are you doing now and why did you leave your previous job?
1: Okay, yeah, that's fair enough. Um, so the thing, bear in mind, any job, I think the most important thing is your boss, right? If you don't get along with your boss, then it's just not going to be a great experience. Um, that isn't the reason why I left my old job. My boss was, I really got along well with him. But like, look, it's a fluid industry. People move from the south side to the buy side. Yep. So my boss moved. He'd been in Southside side for about six years and he wanted to go to Qatar. Very different lifestyle. So he did that and then... We are a two-person team, which is quite rare most of the time. If you're an associate and you've just joined, you've got quite a few people on your team, but it was just the two of us, he left, and there was a lot of uncertainty for me. Like, I might have moved into another sector, but the sector they were looking at moving me into, which I had reservations about, basically because um, the guy who (laughs) was gonna be put with, I was like, I don't wanna work with him. I'd rather work with anyone else but this guy. Um, And after a few weeks, I'm like, oh, we're gonna put you with this guy, and I was like, Hmm, yeah but i'll stop looking elsewhere you know? and then <laughs> i went on holiday for two weeks did all my interviews in uh, Andorra skiing yeah and they were like oh we've got this job with this guy you know he's been in the industry 35 years you can get promoted faster and i'm just like well it's a better it's a bigger better firm you know a bulge bracket versus a tier two i'm sure. just like I might as well go for it you know yeah so yeah. i handed him my notice and that was that um so it, i think it wouldn't have happened if my boss had stayed you know you get into a certain way of working and you and you like if you if if you're comfortable with your boss I think it's good to stay with them yeah um because you can get moved somewhere else and just not have that relationship but uh, I was just sort of more forced by the situation I think yeah Um, and it's always something you've got to be cognizant of like people vote with their feet and you should do that same likewise like if you feel like you're not enjoying it or you know you're in a difficult position don't just stay for the sake of it like look elsewhere yeah Um, but you've got to play your cards well you can't you can't um You can't leave before you've got something else lined up, obviously.
0: Yeah, that's true. So this next one's a bit controversial. (laughs) Uh, It's from Bridged Candle. So sell-side analysts seem to have been notoriously biased with their price targets. (laughs) Why do you think that is? Is it due to conflict of interest or incentives? This seems like there's no accountability.
1: Yeah, no, that's fair. I mean, I don't think it's that controversial, (laughs) to be honest. Um, Look, I think it's a really good question really I, I think there is accountability right because like people that are the top of the profession like my boss been in the industry a long time they have they have something that differentiates them from everyone else on the street but like, you don't yeah they have like a we call it the institutional investor survey where the buy side votes on who's the best analyst it's like a fucking popularity contest, yeah, contest it's like a but, buzzfeed
0: ranking con- <laughs> quiz or something yeah
1: um but like if you're consistently getting things wrong I don't think you're going to be as popular right so like, i yeah. think there are incentives to like have the right rating and think critically about it and look like a large part of my job is being critical of like oh why are we underweight this or we equal weight this why aren't we overweight here and by the way different streets have different companies have different ratings so like jeffries yeah. it was just buy and sell and hold which i think is a bit too simplistic especially in this environment um a lot of people just won't want to buy anything in this environment so yeah more understanding it's more equal weight overweight underweight and you know, you can apply that in a different context. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. going back to the question, I think, I think, um, people have stale models for one, maybe they have lots of companies in their coverage Yeah. and there are smaller cap companies that they don't really give that much stuff about. So they don't update their approach to valuing it and maybe their price target therefore is stale. You know, like in this environment, interest rates are going up. You've got to yeah. whack up your whack, Yeah. no pun no intended. Um, and, you know, you've got to compress your multiple and that'll come through with a lower price target, right? Yeah. And I think the other thing is there is definitely a tendency when people have committed to something for a significant period of time, it can be quite hard for them to go, look, I'm wrong. Um, but I think, yeah, there are, there are numerous factors, it is very a very personal thing. I think a lot of analysts are incentivized to change their rating and their price target yeah. if it's of a significant, if there's enough client interest. Like, if people, if, if it's like a reason, like, say it's got a billion, two billion market cap, and you know, you talk regularly to hedge funds about it, yeah. you're going you're going to update your model, right? I think the other problem is that analysts move, this is probably the biggest point, they move with the market too much. Yeah. You know, so like when the when yeah. it's in a bull market, it's like, I remember my old boss, Jeffrey's, his price targets were really high. I look back on it now and I was like, these multiple, like, what's this EV a bit done multiple? It doesn't make any sense. like Yeah. Um, manufacturing and growth which carries on for five years at the same rate it seems quite unrealistic but in that market you know prices rising and rising and rising I mean, there's a tendency for people to extrapolate their assumptions to be yeah. more aggressive with their assumptions maybe their bull case becomes their base case and in a downturn vice versa maybe their base case becomes their their um, their price target right
0: how, how much of that do you think is because everyone else is saying the same thing right like in sell side you get you get the, the habit of like well if it's a bull market everyone's you know risk on right yeah, so yeah. all the research is positive everything's great everything's looking great yeah and from an investor perspective that's kind of what you want to hear anyway right yeah like you're an investor with a bunch of cash you're yeah. in a bull market you want to you want to hear that you right, invest. right right okay so let's
1: turn the coin right So you know it's, it's june 2020 yeah people are making shit tons of money on the market yeah you know it's like already valuations make no sense but no one's talking <laughs> about it. no one cares yeah there's yeah. money to be made do you think you're gonna be, your whole job as a sell side analyst is to sell research, get interactions, talk to clients? Yeah. Do you think clients are gonna to talk to you if you're saying, oh, this is a five year high, this valuation, you should go all in cash? And everyone you know, else is like, oh. They're gonna be like, involved. oh no, I wanna make money, that is my job, right? Yeah, exactly. And in, in a bear market, if you're saying, oh look though, this is at a five year low, you should get buying in aggressively when the sentiment's still terrible, Yeah. and the macro backdrop's gonna get worse. And unfortunately, that's what's driving the market at the moment, there's no, almost nothing micro yeah. driving, driving that market yeah. if you're really bullish in that environment do you, are they going to take you seriously no so like the incentives are there to, to get interactions because yeah. that's how you get paid yeah. to do that you've got to say something that's different so in some instances someone will literally just put a sell on something just for the sake of it to get the interaction Yeah, or you've got to go with the wind of the market because otherwise people won't talk to you right? and so I think yeah to go back to the question there probably are I don't think the incentives are great when you think of it from that, from that side like yeah like you know, it's in people's interest to say something controversial, different, or what people want to hear. Yeah. Um, and that's not always. I don't. That that analysis probably isn't that impartial or unbiased. But the buy side knows that. Like people aren't stupid. Yeah. They know that when they talk to you that, and they're in a massive bull market, that you've probably got some unrealistic assumptions in your model. But yeah. they'll look at your model and they'll change those assumptions. They'll flex it and they'll talk to you more about your understanding of the business and management. And that's where more of the sell side gives the value. I think they have. A closer understanding of the business because they only look at six companies. Whereas, yeah. you know, yeah. an asset manager can look at hundreds, right, so. Yeah.
0: Which I think ties in very nicely to the next question, <laughs> which I think, I, I get this fucking all the time, and it's how much insider trading do you normally see? Because like, I, I get this oh. a lot on the buy side, right? Yeah. And I think people overblow how much it actually happens. Yeah. Because like, I've seen none.
1: Yeah. Like, um, nothing. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah.
0: It's mostly a movie thing. I think it's kind of like dramatized in movies, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, my flatmate, he's a consultant. He was watching Industry the other day, and I was just like, oh, said, oh my God, is it that really? Are there parts of this that are true? And I'm just like, no. Yeah. He works from Wall Street. And they're like, are oh, there any parts of this in your job? And I'm just like, no, of course there isn't. Like, it's so regulated now, isn't it? You know, yeah, post the financial crisis, especially, it's like, if you could go to jail for seven years for insider trading, you're not even going to sniff it. You're not even going to want to be like within a 100 miles or someone that's doing insider trading.
0: Yeah. It's, it's insane. Like, I have to report every breakfast. A cl- <laughs> if, I, if a client buys me a coffee at Starbucks, I need to report it or I go to jail. Like, it's that strict. Yeah. There's no way I'm trading on insider information anymore. I'm sure it does happen in, like, illiquid markets. You can kind of spoof some of the order books really easily. That does kind of happen, yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah, But, like, that's just kind of nature of the game. Like, if a, if a market is insanely illiquid, there's going to be a couple of people that, that try their luck, right? And, uh...
1: I also I think that, weird. like, any insider trading that does happen is at, at quite a high level of, a higher pay grade, basically. Like, Yeah. I don't think it's going to be happening at, like, our sort of level. You know, I don't think it's going to be analysts at a hedge fund that are doing insider trading. You know, they'll be axed first, right? It's gonna yeah. It's going to be people that are yeah. in a position of power. We have that stability
0: of being <laughs> like, you know what? I, I can get away, I could probably get away with this. <laughs> yeah,
1: someone that's, you know, an MD equivalent, right? Like, yeah, like, yeah any insider trade it does happen would happen there and i haven't seen it does it happen of course yeah is it a lot less frequent definitely can i put a number on it know.
0: <laughs> so i got some quant questions but i'm gonna ignore those oh so this is one i get quite often do you see anybody doing technical analysis just do, do people draw um, triangles and no, charts it's and
1: bullshit. sorry I, I think it is in, in research it's complete <laughs> bullshit like you just can't use it yeah you know, like <laughs> especially in this environment, you know, like every time it might be like, oh my God, this indicator is, what?" what's the classic indicator where it's below 20? Yeah, everyone's or like, it. oh, it's below 20. I'm like, it's been below 20 for like a year. Yeah. Like that doesn't mean it's a buy, right? So, yeah, I also think that there's a tendency to, as humans, we have quite a good tendency to like backwards fit something to say, oh, this has happened five times in the past and each time where that's happened, yeah. you've seen, I don't know, like, this, this indicator hit this level and yeah. it could purely be a coincidence right Like, yeah. and each time, I don't want to say each time is always different but a lot of the time it is right like you can't just you can't make predictions on the future purely looking through a backwards mirror especially when we're in such a different environment to yeah. anything, the most comparable thing we're currently experienced is in the 70s and the environment we're in now so like trying to backwards fit it I think is just a bit of a Bad
0: idea. (laughs) And that's what quant's all about. Like, on, on this TikTok, I get a lot of flack for just shitting on technical analysis because, one, it doesn't work, and two, I code it up, and I share the code publicly, and I show people definitively that it does not work. And I'm like, you can test my code. Right. Tell me why it's not working. Right. It doesn't work. Like, if it was so easy to just slap a fucking indicator on a chart, look at a couple of levels and buy and sell, everyone would be doing it. Everyone would be a fucking billionaire.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: And... I think people do look at it. Like, I, I get research from Bloomberg and this kind of stuff where people look at indicators and shit, but it's more like a confirmation bias. Like, you, first you do your fundamental research, then the quants get involved, then the portfolio managers get involved, then the economists and your company get involved. It's this like multi tiered process before you finally get to an investment decision. And the last leg of it is like, how can I make myself feel comfortable? In this decision, and like the last little tiny dust on the end is technical analysis. I think mm. just to be like, you know what, these levels hold historically, or whatever other nonsense people want to feed themselves to make them feel better. That's where it happens.
1: It's also, like-, like, I mean, if something happens that the market isn't expecting, I mean, just look at what happened. Like, was it yesterday? I think it was with Snapchat, right? Like, just thirty <laughs> percent down, and people are like, oh yeah, but the stock price isn't like. What, what was it before they sell off? Like $10 or something. Oh, it can't fall, can't fall much more than that. I mean, look look how cheap it is. And I'm like, well, I'm not really generating any cash flow, it's not profitable, but it's fine. Let's just go around the, the argument that the share price is so low, you know? It can't go any yeah f- lower. Of course it can. Like, if, if people if people are scared or anxious or fearful about something, and or something happens which they don't expect, the market tends to overshoot, doesn't it? Like, dramatically. Yep. Yep. And before the market's already opened, you can have quite thin trading volumes on the pre-market, for example, in the US. Yeah. Where you have when the as soon as the market's open, it's 30% down. Um, and that isn't like, you know that isn't going to be resolved by looking at a technical analysis chart and saying, oh we're at 14 on the RSI. Yeah. yeah. You know, if the market if, if the company's earnings are terrible and people are over don't expect it or over position on the long side, the stock will fall 30%. And then all of a sudden, the RSI will shoot back up, right? Yeah. And it'll be like, oh, it's no longer oversold. And you're like, oh, that doesn't make any sense. It's 30% lower. I mean, that's
0: what I've been saying on this channel for so long. It's like, there's no indicator or candlestick pattern that's going to tell you (laughs) what actually drives the price. What drives the price are the fundamentals. Like, if you look at any earnings report and the data before it happens, you're like, okay, it's all flat. Yeah. The second it's announced, you see these giant moves, (laughs) and you're like, there's no fucking triangle on a chart that's gonna tell you what's gonna happen at that point, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's the fundamentals. It's the analysts that know those companies inside and out. That are like, okay, you know what? Based on this, this, and this, I know the revenue is gonna be fairly decent. We're gonna go overweight or something like that. That's how you know.
1: Yeah, and look. Also, if you're in a difficult environment like this, you start with a small position. You're conservative, um, and um, I think you've got to have you've got to have capital on the side. I think oh, that's. People have capital on the side because they're aware that like bear markets can last a long time. And the bull market we had post the COVID sell off was ridiculous. (laughs) That's just money printing. I just find it crazy that we we got to that stage where everyone was like, oh, you know, actually convincing themselves that like the market was efficient and pricing in things properly. No. And then are actually confused when the the sell off would happen for ages. And then it would be, you know, a very, very severe bear market. I was saying it from like June 2020, which is way too early, but like i don't think people actually appreciated like just how much irrationalism there was in the market like you've got companies that were generating no cash flow and are never going to be profitable and they were being traded like on ev sales which makes no sense yeah like you're trading it on like net debt to sales like what the fuck yeah (laughs) yeah the market's a crazy thing like i think
0: the money printing didn't help right like we had a we had like decades of almost near zero, if not negative interest rates, real rates were negative, right? Yeah. And on top of that, you had companies that were able to borrow money at negative rates, negative real rates, effectively. Yeah. Yeah. Dumping money into anything slightly profitable, anything that a client was even remotely interested in, fucking a billion. (laughs) I'll take five yards or some shit. You know what I mean? It was just so easy to get involved. And I think even where we are now, I think the market can go way lower. Because we're like on a price earnings basis on the SP, we're basically at pre COVID levels. Yeah. Which is fucking insane to me. Because like all that money printing that happened during COVID, we're just offset that. Yeah. And we're not even in a fucking official recession yet. Yeah. I think it's insane that people are, are considering buying at these levels. I, I, I don't doubt it's going to bottom out.
1: I think there are particular, look, there are always idiosyncratic companies, particular companies. Oh, which, yeah. Yeah. Which, 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 which could outperform the market. And that might mean that you buy in for the next 10 months, you're 10% down yeah but like i think you you if you've done the analysis and you're really confident about the long-term prospects of a company don't just say i'm not going to buy anything like if if you are really confident you should still buy but you should buy you know a small position with conviction with conviction and if if you get an opportunity where the price goes lower you you could treat treat the stock price as just like an opportunity for you don't think of it as you know don't be motivated by it don't be don't be, don't be corrupted by it's basically what I'm trying to say because I think a lot of people they look at the stock price as a confirmation that they're right yeah or that like the valuation of a business the valuation of a business doesn't change the stock price is just a reflection of people's fucked up feelings and emotions at a particular point in time because yeah. they're a result of a whole host of other factors right yeah yeah so you start with a small position the price may get cheaper if so you you know it's like if, if you wanted to buy something from a shop and it was twenty percent cheaper you you buy it right like, yeah. Yeah, so you, the you dollar cost average, right? <laughs> yeah. that's, that's, the, that's, that's the strategy in this environment. Exactly. Um, and you've got to have a long-term perspective. Yeah. Like, yeah. you can't be trying to make... I don't think in this environment you're going to have much success trying to buy something and flip it in six months or a few months. You know. Yeah, yeah. Maybe you can you know, you could do some intraday trades. Sure, there are techniques and stuff you can do, but that's very difficult, I think, for people at the beginning start small, have a long-term focus, don't be impacted by the stock price. Don't check it, don't literally just ignore it. The best performing investment accounts are those which people forgot they had. Yeah. Like
0: (laughs) literally. You bought something like six six years ago, 10 years ago, all of a sudden you're up. Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. And over a 10 year period, you've got to have some pretty down bad luck. Unless you've bought one stock for shit, which is obviously, one investing don't buy one company (laughs) yeah like so
0: so like what i'm doing is i have like three main avenues of investment one is i dollar cost average into the s&p 500 every month yeah every month that's been horrible for me this year Mm. but i still do it because it's a long-term bet right it's not like i'm not trying to make money in the short term for that exactly the second thing i do is i invest in uh u.s treasuries nice. currently so like nice. all, instead of having all my cash in my bank account i nice. buy short dated u.s treasuries yeah because they're like five six percent yield i know so i just roll them on every six months or three months oh
1: it's ridiculous it's like I mean, free money i mean it's like i think the market has definitely you could definitely see the market is just fucking broken down in some areas yeah like don't get me wrong like historically when there's been a recession the yield curve's inverted right yeah, Two yeah. years gone above the 10 year but like it's gone to such an extent now where it's like not only is the market pricing in a recession it's like this is going to happen. It's going to be really bad. Yeah. And like worse than stuff like the last, like worse since like the seventies. And maybe it will be, but like, I don't know. I just, I think if, if it, it carry, let's just say March next year. Yeah. The two year is at 5.5% or something ridiculous. <laughs> like that could happen. Like it genuinely could happen. I'd be, my, my whole firm would be fucked. <laughs> we're, we're overweight treasuries. <laughs> I would be thinking like, Okay, now is definitely the time where like the market is just like completely broken down. Like, yeah, like there is nothing driving this anymore but fear. It's such I feel a like we're getting line. there, though. I feel like we are getting there. Where at the moment, nothing is driving it but fear and macro news. On, it's all about macro. That. It's yeah. all
0: fucking macro. It's all the Fed. It's all about the pivot. It's all about the mm. hard, soft landing, and it's it's ridiculous.
1: And it's like at work, you know, the ED and MD and my team, forty five years experience between them. And Every time they check the stock price in the morning after the market's opened or midday, they're like, What the fuck is going on? Yeah, and like that isn't normal for someone that's looked like most of the time they'll be like, Oh, the stock market's doing like this sector's doing well today because like the government had this policy or this company reported well, yeah, and they just decided to carry on for the rest of the week, yeah. But now it's like they have to literally ask, like, What's going on? Oh, the Fed may be they may be pivoting, yeah, not even a no, are, it's just no, a rumor, it's, it's, yeah, you know, and it's like, Wow, okay, um it's almost like everything else has become irrelevant yeah and in the bull market everything else became irrelevant like everything the, goes the, up the economic news market. was irrelevant in the bull market and the only thing that mattered was oh like um the, the whole reopening story right oh we're yeah. reopening like everything's coming back there's just this boundless optimism and yeah. this willingness to just look past the wider economic picture and in this environment there's just boundless pessimism on the economic picture and a, lack of willingness to look at anything micro or yeah. company specific. So we, this is the, I think maybe we're in a new environment where the market just dramatically over and undershoots to both extents, because in the past, I don't think this is like, I feel like this is quite a unique environment for it to have been so inefficient, like for people to claim the market's efficient. I mean, it's just, this is a, a perfect example of how it's not <laughs> like It's just, what, it just made. it so wrong in both yeah. the directions. It's yeah, it's, it's trying to behold. I think. So I've got
0: some questions here. Uh, what's the best way to get into an equity, equity analyst role without a graduate scheme? So can you do that? Can you, can you become an equity analyst on the sell side without a graduate scheme? Yeah,
1: I mean, so I joined a, um, sort of a graduate, was a graduate role, I think. Um, but I mean, obviously you can come into it later. Like you don't have to come out as a graduate doing it. You could work, I don't know, doing management consulting, do an MBA and then come in at a higher level. Or you could, yeah. Um, you know, it's obviously harder to get a role on the buy side. You. you could, you—I don't know why you move from the buy side to the sell side. but If you really wanted to, you could. I think there are people that are in investment banking and they just want better work-life balance, so yeah, they, they they do that afterwards. But look, it is a hard area to break into. It's not as hard as throwing from a graduate level. It's not as hard as investment banking, um, as in like you know M and A. Yeah. But yeah, it is difficult, and I think you do have to. The best way to do it is to try and get in an internship, like that's that's obvious, I think. I mean, if you don't do that, then working respectable management consultant or an audit, audit's quite popular now because a lot of these roles are quite accountancy-based. Yeah. So if you've worked at, and when I say an audit, like at PwC or like a, one of the big four, yeah. you've done that for a few years and you've got like your ACA, then you can move in and that's becoming quite popular as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, I know PwC has an MA department as well and they, people move internally all the time. They're like, they'll do like, your ACA, whatever your basic scheme in accounting or audit you do, yeah. they'll, Then they'll switch to the M&A department in PwC or KPMG, whatever it is, yeah. And then they go to one of these like blue chip companies, yeah. That's quite common, yeah. Yeah, or so, like I guess there's sort of apprenticeships as well, right? In the UK, I don't know if like MS has one or I don't. I know my my company does have a few, but not in like Southside.
1: Yeah, there are apprenticeships, but I don't think they're. I've not seen any that directly lead into like more operations or that sort of stuff as opposed to equity research. i sure they might be in I think there are other banks, like I think JP and Goldman Sachs may have some, but I, I haven't heard about them like, yeah. in equity research specifically. I think I think really the foolproof ways are you do an MBA, you work in investment banking, you get onto a grad scheme or internship, or you do audit beforehand. There are the main ways. There are others, but like you'd have to fight harder yeah. to get to get in, I think. Through another route, or there are people that work, obviously, in something like wealth management for a bit. They have and they then have to like do some training to show they've developed modelling. But I think really, like, if you're not if you're not coming from an investment banking background or some sort of other banking background or you know like an MBA background you have to demonstrate that you've got the modeling and accountancy skills. And the best way to do that is genuinely getting ACA qualification. Or, yeah. Um, you know, working in order. That does seem to be the main other route. I think.
0: Yeah. That makes sense. So Cheyenne, Shayam is asking, what does your daily work routine consist of? Like, what, what do you do on a day to day basis when you go into the office?
1: <laughs> Fuck. Um, yeah. <laughs> this sounds,
0: sounds like a painful question.
1: Yeah, no, it's a painful <laughs> question. It is a painful question. I think every morning is very similar. Like, you know, the main news comes out at 7, of course, 7am, because that's when the RNS is ss Regulatory News Service for Public Companies comes out. Yeah. Um, the particular day, it will very much depend on the day, like if it's a day where a company is reporting their earnings, then like you have to be in the office earlier, you have to prepare, you know, like one of the, the key things about the sales side is not only that there's a huge focus on accuracy, like yeah. if you just get anything wrong. Then your reputation, and credibility is shot. Right, there's no room for error at all. Yeah. And like on the buy side, it's a different sort of pressure because you have to make money. And if you don't make money, you know, we're out. You're out. Right? <laughs> we're done. So <laughs>
0: that's my career over. Yeah. <laughs> Go back to the base of England <laughs> <laughs> at that point.
1: <laughs> so it's a very different sort of pressure. But like to answer the question, you usually get in around six thirty, and it's all about being on top of the news flow when it comes out. You know, like making sure that by seven a.m. You've read anything that's interesting that came out the night before. Um, anything on in your sector. So you, you know which, you end up learning what newsletters to follow or pages to look at, but like you just be on top of the news first thing. Yeah. Then it's the emails, any client requests, you handle that. And obviously if it's an earnings day, you get someone else to do that <laughs> and your focus is on writing the earnings roll, and it has to be out by quarter past seven. Yeah. And has to be checked by someone. So that means you have to prep everything beforehand. It literally have to like, you know exactly what parts of the release are going to relate to what chart and what numbers are going to be in which paragraph and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. So different mornings bring different stresses. But then there'll also be weeks where it's quieter and you work on more regular, like bigger pieces. You, we wrote like a, a very large, like 400 page note looking at like a, a 1%, 3%, 5% hit to GDP, modeling how that would impact the balance sheet and cash flow and income statement for these companies, yeah. what that would mean for, and then adjusted our bear cases. And then you know we're able to give like a holistic view of why why we're top why some of these companies are our top picks that sort of thing yeah so there are there are weeks where you'll be working on the same report for like two three weeks you know busy but you're just working on one thing and obviously yeah. doing some clarifications and stuff on top and then there'll be other weeks like next week where I have four earnings in a row so you're just <laughs> getting in at six every day and just yeah. you know covering loads of earnings yeah. Um, yeah and then other days where it will be quieter so like it's very seasonal. Yeah. Um, But it's an early morning job. You get a lot done before lunchtime. Like you're the most productive from 6.30 to 12.30. I almost feel like sometimes the work I do from 6.30 to lunchtime is more than most people doing their day job. By that point, anything afterwards is just a bonus. Yeah. (laughs) It's very much a focus on being very productive when the markets are open. Yeah. And then they close at 4.30. So if you do, you do have other things to do sometimes later in the evening, but most of the time it's just about being as productive as possible for clients during that time
0: yeah that makes sense i mean it's kind of similar for me but like i work mostly eight thirty slash 9 till five thirty or 6 sometimes so it's not it's not too bad on average it's a 9 to 6 <laughs> or a 9 to 5 so it's not too bad but i do find that it's on the buy side at least it's stressful in a different way in the sense that you can't fuck up yeah you fuck up once, as a quant especially, you fuck up once, it means you're shit at math, you're shit at your stats, you don't know how to program, no one's gonna hire you. No one. Because you just fucked up everyone's money. You can't be wrong as a quant. You need to know your shit inside and out. And I think that's why the industry currently is shifting from masters students to PhD students. Mm. So like nowadays, when I get my CVs through, I recently got like a hundred CVs sent to me from mm-hmm. my from the quant department. And they're like, okay, we need like two or three from these from this list to hire for this year's round of quant or, or whatever interns or whatever. They're all fucking PhDs. <laughs> and I, I was looking at this and I'm like, all these guys are fucking insanely overqualified for this role. Yeah. And the main reason is because people people want that ability of just being able to be insanely passionate about one thing and know it inside and out. They don't care if you That's... don't know anything about <clears throat> finance.
1: That's fascinating, yeah. No, it makes sense, right? Like, if they're overqualified, they're more likely when they've been working long hours and their brain is 50% capacity to still not get it wrong as well, you know? So. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: And that's what I hate. So the, one of the best things about quant is the pay and the work hours. The worst thing is you need to be switched on. Yeah. On math, stats, computer science, and sometimes even, like, physics. Yeah. And it's the most ridiculous requirement I've ever heard because, you, like, I get... The head of my department sends me physics papers on Sundays being like, hey, there's this new revelation in quantum mechanics. Maybe this can be applied to our field. Can you think of some ways where it could be applied? I'm like, fuck, man, it's a Sunday. (laughs) Leave me alone. And it it happens very often. And part of the reason is because clients want that nowadays. Like, I think everyone's obsessed with the combination of fundamental and quant. I think that's become the trend nowadays. Yeah. And I think a lot of some quant shops would argue that quant is fundamental anyway, but I I don't think so. But there's definitely like a combination of the two that get involved. And I think because of that, because of the client demand for it, there's so much extra shit you need to think of that was not usually the case. And I think that's why I kind of like smaller hedge funds as opposed to asset managers. Like when I was at the crypto hedge fund, it it was like three of us and we were managing like half a yard and it was just it was really easy the hours were way longer like i, I would wake up at like six and i would finish at like 10 mm. and it was ridiculous but at the very least it was your own hours your own work and everything that you came up with was directly attributable to a loss or a gain for that company because there's only three of you right if you fuck up you fuck up bad and at the very least you had some ownership of your work whereas now it needs to be like 16 fucking departments dipping their hands in the jar Before you get to deploy anything, even as quants, right? Like Mm -hmm. law has to get involved, tech has to get involved, the portfolio Mm -hmm. managers have to get involved, your clients need to say something about it too. And that's just kind of boring because it's like before you make, if you know something's gonna happen tomorrow morning in the financial markets and you wanna make money on it, it'll take you like six months in asset management to actually get it done. Whereas in the hedge fund world, it's just instant. You don't need client approval, you don't need anything, you just go out and do it.
1: Yeah. And I think that work. Look, I think it works for some people, and it doesn't for others. Like, you have to have. I think that's, to work for a long only a hedge fund that places so much importance, of course, on the bottom line. Yeah. Like you have to be able to deal with the stress, the stress and the pressure of the job, and you also have to like um, be able. How can I phrase this? Um, It's a risk, right? You're taking a massive risk. Yeah. Um, whenever in a hedge fund, whenever you're making a decision, because a lot of the time your job depends on that, and you have to be able to deal with that that pressure. Like, and some people just cannot deal with it. Some people are just not made for it. And if so, I don't think you should be should be looking for it. Like, you have to be cognizant of your own stress tolerance. That I think is the most important thing really, when you're weighing up. If if you've already decided, like, you really you really enjoy finance, stock market, whatever. If you were making a decision between working for a you know, top-tier hedge fund and someone else, I think you do have to have that in mind. I don't think it's something that's discussed enough, sort of the stress and the pressure that comes with the <laughs> yeah. job, right? Yeah. Yeah.
0: I think that that's one of the things that I think about finance people don't understand is, like, it is really good money for the hours, but it's insanely stressful mentally. Mm. Like, it doesn't matter if you're in sell-side or buy-side or whatever the fuck you're doing in finance. It is just mentally exhausting. Yeah. Because you're always switched on yeah there's not many jobs where you finish after work you go back home and you're still just fucking dreading every decision in your day <laughs> you're like looking through your emails you get these reports sent to you you have to like you have to be on top of everything 24 7 because there's money involved right yeah and i think it's one of those few fields in the world where that's actually the case and it sucks in a way yeah i think quant gets less of that just because we're most mostly like math nerds right we're just set sat in the middle office just doing our fucking models, putting clients' money to work, whatever. Yeah. Once in a while, we'll talk to a client. We don't have to. PMs do that for us. If you're in a hedge fund, you don't need to talk to anybody. just fucking use their money and do what you want. But I know in the sales side, in particular, it can be insanely fucking stressful, right? Because, like, your P&L is based off of how much research you do. It's based on what your fucking recommendations are, how many companies you talk to. It's insane.
1: Yeah. The pressure I've found, really, it's been, like, don't get me wrong. Like I'm pretty diligent. Don't make many mistakes. But like my boss expects zero mistakes. Yeah. And I think the longer you work, like especially when you get up early in the morning, if it's eight nine PM and you're still working, you are going to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, like you know, it's your productivity is a function of time, right? It yeah. starts really high and it goes down, and so does your error instance. You know, it starts yeah. low. Sorry, vice versa. Your error instance, right? So yeah, starts low and goes up as the day goes on, and. I think sometimes the pressures of getting things done in a short time period, but not being able to be as diligent checking it and like making sure it's correct is, is is probably one of the hardest parts about working on the sales side. Like Once you've covered a company for a few months, you know inside out, you know it's management, you know what makes it tick, you know what the key numbers are on earnings, you know that becomes easy, right? Yeah. But like when you have to write like three notes in a day, and they all have to be done by a certain time, and you don't have time to, you, you, you're you more like, la- you're going to rush things, aren't you, to get it done, and you're more likely to make a mistake. and there's just no tolerance for mistakes. So I think that's sort of the hardest thing about the outside yeah. Side for me. Like I don't actually think the job in terms of the requirements for the mod, well, some of the modeling is pretty difficult, but aside from that, I don't really think there's that much technical knowledge. The most important things are that you make, that you're, you've got an eye for detail and you're diligent. Yeah. You're a good communicator, both written and spoken. And like, you know, you can handle like the stress of having multiple things going on. Yeah, I think those are like the most important things. And look, on the buy side, it's the stress of not making a loss, and again, handling multiple things that are going on in the market. So there are stresses on both sides. But I think people that are people, I think for people to work in a, a top hedge fund, like they need to have that drive, that desire to to take a risk, be be comfortable with dealing with the press, the stress and pressure of that. Yeah. But also motivated enough, you know, by the financial aspect of it, because it is, if you are good and you can deal with that, you can make an awful lot of money yeah conviction
0: matters a lot like i think it, it a lot of it blows out how convicted you are and what you're saying it doesn't matter if you're sell side or buy side right like you need mm-hmm. to be fully like tapped into the market you know yeah and be able to convince anybody of it yeah it doesn't matter if you're a quant or a sell side researcher or whatever you need to know it inside and out so when you talk to clients or your manager or whatever it might be you can convince them that you know what you're talking about yeah yeah, it's, it's a tough industry. <laughs> it's so much shit you need to keep on top of.
1: I think the other thing I've learned from this <laughs> job is like, <laughs> the other thing I've learned from this job is just like, I think in other industries, you could probably get away with doing a few hours of work and not updating your superior or whoever yeah. in your team, how you're doing. But like, I, I'd imagine me, you got some more autonomy on the buy side, but obviously, if you make a mistake, you are literally gone. Yeah. Um, but on the sell side, especially for someone that's more junior, there is a demand for constant communication. Yeah. Like it is akin to micromanagement, except you expect the micromanagement and <laughs> you're proactive about like almost ensuring you're micromanaged or you're told off. Yeah. Um, and I think like you need to regularly, for me at least, I need to regularly tell my boss what I'm working on, how, how I'm doing, what parts are done, which parts aren't done. And it seems excessive. Yeah. I think it probably is excessive, but that's just another part of the industry. Like, these people the other thing to bear in mind is that people that are higher up yeah eds and mds like they're under the most pressure because their name goes on the research at the top of it right yeah and they're the ones that interact most with the clients and so they need that comfort regularly and i think if they don't get that that they stress out and that create and honestly i've learned it it makes it hard to do your job if they're stressed right yeah um so that's another thing to bear in mind i think It'll probably be a bit of a shock to people about how much you have, how organized you have to be, yeah, and how much you have to communicate. Um, Yeah, just over communicate, over plan, and you will still end up communicating under plan. So yeah,
0: yeah, (laughs) yeah. I mean, finance is one of those things where like it interacts with so many different skill sets. Someone did ask in the comments actually, like, what are the top skill sets that you utilize? Yeah. Like, do, at, do you want to go for <laughs> I mean, quant, Quant's very different. Like quant is, you talk to clients, you do math, you do portfolio optimizations, you do strategies. The top skill set is not being wrong. Yeah. <laughs> like that, that sound, sounds similar. Yeah. Like it's, it's, you don't get many chances to get wrong, to be wrong. Like you got a few, if you're early in your career, you can be wrong a couple of times. No one expects you to know anything. You're green. No one cares. Right. But the second you start elevating a little bit and you're interacting more with portfolio managers, with clients, that's when the tolerance for mistakes is basically zero. Yeah. Like you make one mistake in a client meeting, you're fucking out. you're gone. Yeah. No one's gonna wanna see you again because you can't make mistakes in those environments. Or, yeah. or like if your model is wrong or someone, you, you can build wrong models, that's completely fine. People are there to validate, people are there to check it. You have a conversation about it, you discuss it. But if it gets deployed and everyone else signed off on it and it's still wrong, you're the first one at fault.
1: Right, of course. Yeah.
0: Everyone else involved is, is it's not their problem. In this
1: environment it's important that like if you have a even the smallest of doubt on something, you get someone else yeah. to talk it through with, you get someone else to check it, or you triple check it yourself. Yeah. Or preferably you do all of those things. Yeah. Like because it's always gonna fall it, back on people, you. You're always going to make some mistakes, but the yeah. key thing is you've got to learn about how you make sure those mistakes don't become crippling mistakes or yeah. things that impact the firm, right? Like, it's cliche, but you have you have got to do that for your yeah. own survival. <laughs> like, yeah, pretty much. Um, so yeah, I think the key skills for a research analyst, equity research analyst are, one, like I said, communication is so important. Yeah. Like, I would say you need to have a strong written skill set. You need to be, you need to be able to write clearly, concisely, and quickly. Yeah, and you also need to be able to um, keep on top of. So, like, organisation is just so important. Like, people that are the best analysts are those that have planned what they're going to do for three months. Yeah, or we'll have a business planning meeting in every single expert event we're going to do. So, like, a call with with an expert, um, or. Um, Base of corporate access, we're going to do research, we're going to do when the next earnings are going to be. We have all of that planned for like the next year. Yeah, and yeah, that may seem excessive to people, but the time comes around quickly. And each day, if you have everything in your calendar perfectly planned, you're going to be more productive and you'll never miss anything. Yeah, because it's so important that things aren't missed and that mistakes aren't made. So, um, organization that's communication, uh, time management, communication. Obviously, you've got to have modelling, financial modelling skills. Like, you yeah. got to be good with numbers. You've yeah. got to be able to be quick with mental arithmetic, confident with, you know, like, confident with Excel and and the accounting behind that. Yeah. Um, and then, I think that's they're the really analytical skills. They're the main one really like. I I think. You've also got to have you've also got to have resilience because like it's long hours, early yeah. starts. Yeah. You've got to be able to like stay focused when you've been working for long hours yeah <laughs> um so yeah I think, I think that's it really can't really think of much else
0: fair enough <laughs> i think one of the last questions i got and i was saving this for last is are you happy <laughs>
1: yeah that's a, that's a big question god um i get this one a lot <laughs> yeah god that's a really tough question i think i mean it goes with the wind right Mm. Like if you have a few weeks like I have where I have made a mistake for a month, great, you know. You're not, yeah. I don't know what, what is happiness. You know, it's subjective. Well, let's not go. Let's not go into that. But like, yeah. the first last month, like I'm more chilled, going to the office, know what to expect, and yeah, I'm pretty content or happy with my job. But like, there are periods where, AKA, I work long hours and I make a mistake. You get yeah. You're bollocking from your boss. <laughs> then of course you're not happy, right? Yeah. Like yeah. so, it, it. I think it ebbs and flows really but on on net i'm happy with it will i do it for a long time no yeah yeah <laughs> how about you
0: yeah i think i'm in the same boat like i think i am happy i think it's it, it's on the balance right like it depends like you said it's an and flow right like yeah. it depends on the month depends on how much bulk you're getting <laughs> yeah. it's very much bulk dependent. <laughs> yeah exactly like it's it's yeah it's an and flow like it's it's it helps a lot to have like like routines in place, yeah. like whether it's the gym or meeting your friends every once in a while, yeah. whatever whatever it might be. Yeah. It really helps. Because yeah. like, at some point, the money doesn't matter anymore. Sure. Like, like arguably, what we were earning at the Bank of England versus what we're <laughs> earning now, there are fucking huge differences. Like,
1: Oh my God. Huge. That was labor Is it? You need? Yeah. yeah. Was, no, yeah, there's
0: a large multiple between the two. <laughs> and the difference now is just that the hours are longer the work is harder it's more mentally stressful yeah but I think I'm happier I'm I'm just as happy as as I was then I yeah. think yeah but it's all dependent on like your friend group what you're doing your habits yeah exactly
1: right? and like how you spend your downtime. Yeah. Like, yeah also um, it does depend though like we've said it does have and flow it does depend on the day it's path. a huge <laughs> flow <laughs> um, <laughs> um like <laughs> Yeah, it's a tough one. I think a lot of people probably, banking's the classic industry, people we'll get into it, they're like, oh, I'm not going to be in it forever, you know, I'll do it for yeah. a f- for a few months or a few years, more. They'll yeah. have that in their mind and then before you know it, you're 50. Yeah. So I think you do have to be cognizant of that. And you, the other point you made about, you know, you make this money, then it doesn't really become about the money anymore. For me, I don't really think, it, like, I'm definitely not keeping in the job because of the money. Like, it's good money, Yeah. but like I could do another job that's, two thirds of the pay in less than half the hours, literally. Yeah. So I, d- I don't really think it's about the money. Obviously it's about as well, the other doors are opens for you, the career opportunities. Yeah. But I'm not gonna like close the door off doing an MBA, but literally doing something else. Yeah, yeah. Um, and like, I don't, I think, I probably get easily bored as well. Like covering one sector after a couple of years, I might be like, oh, I'm might. not. maybe I'll do change sector, but I might change industry. Like I've not written anything off, you know?
0: So. Yeah, yeah
1: life short you don't want to be doing the same thing forever i don't think yeah
0: that's true that's true like i know for quant it changes constantly but that's just because the nature of quant is that the second you do something it gets priced in yeah so i could have like a fucking amazing model that makes a shit ton of money for a few months next thing i know just doesn't work it's broken and now my job is to make a new one and that's just a, it's a constant repetitive cycle so you're always looking for the new technologies the new maths the new stats Whatever you can apply to the industry. That's why we read physics papers sometimes. <laughs> it's because we're looking for any edge possible to make money. Yeah. Yeah, and no. so it's constantly changing and it's exciting, but it's like it's it's something that gets very tiring to the point where you may not be happy, I think. Yeah. Because you're just constantly mentally drained. Yeah. And I think it's the same for sell side, right? Like you're yeah. just always need to be on top of your sectors, yeah. your companies, your names you can't make a mistake it's just it's a lot of work yeah and it's so mentally draining that i think it does weigh a lot on your mental health
1: yeah definitely i mean the other thing though is there are there is seasonality in it and like you know yeah i'm aware that like for after 7th december it's going to be dead and it's going to quiet it up it'll be easier yeah and that does make it easier but like yeah there are also intense periods and maybe after doing it for a few years you think oh do i want to go through that six month period again yeah Yeah, and I think there's no shame in saying, "Oh, I'm going to do something completely different." Like, at our age, I think if you were, this is this is something you do have to weigh up. Like, I think if you are, if you are to do this job, you should do it in your young mid twenties, right? Like, when you've got the stress tolerance, when you've got the energy for one. Yeah. Um. And like. The industry we're in if we make good money we can we can invest it in it'll compound and help us retire earlier so like there are yeah. upsides from it yeah you're not really aware of i think what happens in finance is you get so bogged down in like the specificities of your job and the week goes so quickly yeah that sometimes you well you don't even have that much time to often reflect on what you're doing or whether like that is definitely what you want to be doing with your life um yeah it's, it's a tough one and another sign of a, a job that you enjoy is that it goes quickly but i think the finance it, it, that is not always the case. I think it goes quickly because there just is a lot of work to do. Yeah. And a lot of, it's a lot of pressure. There's always shit to do. Right? Yeah. A
0: lot of pressure. It keeps you busy.
1: Yeah. What
0: do you think is like the thing that keeps you the happiest though in your routine outside of work?
1: Yeah. Um, I think obviously I think massively important going back to your point about people you spend time with, friends, yeah, family, that sort of stuff. Like my flatmates who I've been friends with for a long time and like see them every evening and the weekends and that you know like we have very strong friendships and i think that obviously helps a lot yeah um but also doing you know like just going away for the weekend to like different places i know maybe it sounds a bit toxic we're just fucking off from london for the weekend no know? yeah I, I do the same like, thing <laughs> <laughs> yeah that happens all the time but that always makes me feel better like if i just leave london for London is great. It is amazing,
0: <laughs> but like if you live here, you work here, you need to get away at some point because you just associate it with work, right? Yeah. It's the same routine. It's in and out. You've been to Regent Street like a million times. <laughs> yeah. You've pissed on the side of the London Wall. Who cares, right? Like, it happens. You, you gotta get away sometimes. Yeah,
1: it's odd when you see tourists on the tube and they're like, oh "I love London, <laughs> London, London," and you're just like, "What have you done for the last six months' work?" And every other time, we just fucked off. <laughs> like, yeah,
0: yeah. Just, you gotta leave sometimes.
1: Yeah, but no, I think yeah I, I don't actually think that's is discussed enough is it jobs in finance where people are actually happy and I think I, think I the, always think though like I haven't got it that bad which probably is a bad way of thinking I've almost, I have got acclimatized to the workload yeah but like if I was to go back to a 9 to 5 job I would be like it, it would be a shock in the other direction yeah like how much spare time I had yeah like it would be strange I think yeah like
0: I I have this thing now like I was talking to my flatmate about it and this like we try and go to the gym three times a week yeah but when we do go because he works quite late as well it's literally just you wake up you go to work you go to the gym you eat you go to bed that's it and if you do it more than three times a week you're gonna get insanely depressed because that's your entire work week it's just work gym eat that's it yeah and i think it does not get spoken about (laughs) enough but it's such a common thing where it's like obviously the gym does help you mentally and you, maybe yeah, maybe, maybe you look better but like it's
1: it also gets repetitive right like, it
0: gets repetitive and there's only so much of it you can do with yeah. like long hours yeah like if you work long enough hours if your whole day is just <laughs> work and gym you're gonna get fucking you're, you're, you're gonna go crazy at some you're point
1: you're gonna go insane right you're just gonna yeah. lose the plot to live and will to live sorry yeah yeah it's
0: that's why i think going away helps a lot like i went to the netherlands i went to copenhagen oh, nice. where did you go to
1: the netherlands
0: I saw my aunt over in uh, in Hog. Oh, nice! I was yeah. basically just babysitting. I was fucking like, <laughs> like three or four kids around me, just walking about in the town center while my while my uh, my aunt and her her husband went on a date. <laughs> happens all the time, but it's I don't mind. I don't mind it much.
1: Yeah. And the other thing is of course, make sure that like any holidays you take off, you have a great time and unwind and like, do not think about work. Shut your shit off. That is the problem with finance. (laughs) I think other jobs, you've made this point before, like in the evening you could just leave work and then just like ignore your phone. Yeah. You Um, can't do that in finance. But in finance it's hard and in the evenings you always, even in the weekend you check it every few, well I check it every few hours a week, which is bad. Yeah, same. But like, you just don't know what could happen. And that's the problem, right? Like, yeah company could merge with another company or, or some, anything some can could happen on a fucking Sunday afternoon, like literally. Yeah. Yeah. So um it's harder it is harder to switch off from, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think all those little things do help. The money helps as well as a good motivation to put in those hours, but like having that extra shit in between helps a lot.
1: I I, I am with the view though that like I'm gonna do it for a few years. I don't know about you. It's the big existential life questions. Yeah, yeah, I might be fifty until I'm still in fucking Morgan more Stanley. Like, honestly, could happen. But I, I am of the view that like I'm going to do it for a few years. Yeah, I put away like a third of my income into a pension, so like it's going to grow significantly. Yeah, yeah. And then just you know do a job that's of lower pay but less hours, something that's a lot more relaxed. Um, yeah. I, like I'm not averse to that. Yeah. But at the same time. It's, it's, it is a conundrum. At the same time, my current job, I do feel like I'm stretched at sort of the capacity of what I can do, which is actually quite satisfying because you're learning a lot. Yeah. You feel like you're building your career in a good way. Yeah. The downside is you have like, no work like that. It's Monday <laughs> to Friday, Monday to Thursday, and you struggle to like, find time to do other things. Yeah. And so it's a balancing act. And if I went for a job with less hours, would, it'd be part of me thinking, oh, I could do more, and I could advance faster. But there'd be another part of me going, oh, look, I can to all these other things you know, in the week. Yeah, yeah. So I think it really is quite, for me, I've actually found it quite a difficult thing to um, get to the bottom of, to be honest. Yeah. And at the moment, when I'm young, I think I've probably made the right decision, but in a few years, I'll probably be a different balancing act, won't it? Yeah, like,
0: I'm definitely of the mind of just moving back to Denmark. <laughs> have, have my entire life get paid for, your kids' university and your school get paid Wait, for. Wait, what's
1: this? It's getting paid for it?
0: Like, so in Denmark, your kids get paid to go to school. Oh, wow. It's called ASU. And oh, wow. you, you get, like, an allowance from the government. Oh, sick. It's, like, around 200, wow, 300 it. pounds. <laughs> it's amazing. So I'm like, you don't have to worry about your kids. You don't have to worry about a family. You can be a farmer or, like, <laughs> you can be a taxi driver and still live an insanely good quality of life. Mm. For the time being. Like, the only caveat is they keep raising the pension age for retirement. That's the only bad part. Like, <laughs> So for, for I think it's currently, like, 70-something which is like the average death rate for men. You die at like 70. <laughs> so it, it's not great if you if you're on a pension, but besides that, it's it's amazing.
1: How did you find out about this?
0: I grew up there, so like I, Oh, really? Oh, yeah, wow. Yeah, I was born and raised in Denmark, so I grew up there. Or well,
1: whereabouts? Copenhagen. Copenhagen. Yeah, 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 nice, classic.
0: You grew up in the suburbs in a place called uh Gladsaxe. Wow. It's like a fucking It's basically the project, so you got really tall ass buildings it's a nice place but it's it's yeah <laughs> it's it's pretty good yeah <laughs> it's like you've not got words to describe it it's it's like the Streatham of of copenhagen okay it. okay
1: it's not yeah, bad but copenhagen's a lovely city though isn't it like it really is pretty like the center though
0: yeah it's nice there's a lot of stuff to do but i always get bored when i'm there yeah like there's only so much you can it's do it's pretty
1: small for a european it's
0: city. tiny you can yeah. see the whole city in two days yeah everything yeah but yeah
1: so you're not you're not you're not gonna live in the countryside and retire in the countryside I wouldn't
0: mind I think but I think I think I want like a little break in between where I'm travelling yeah travelling around the, the world essential
1: question I don't think I could live in the countryside full time I go back to the countryside for the weekend because that's where my dad lives and it's like sometimes that is and I'm like oh this is quite nice you know sometimes you just want to unwind right yeah but after like three days of doing that I'm just like get me back to a city <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> so I yeah. think it is it is tough for people some people obviously are look fully like city dwellers
0: yeah I mean I I think we are a bit spoiled in London as well like if you want the most like niche thing you want to be able to do it happens here yeah like it it could be a fucking LARPing (laughs) I don't know World of Warcraft fucking drinking game and it exists here (laughs) I'm sure it exists somewhere it's insane like everything here exists
1: yeah and you do sort of start to take that for granted right you're like oh anything I want to do I can do yeah whereas you go somewhere else and obviously there isn't that Capacity. like you literally go to any other city in Europe yeah maybe more well, Paris is a lot but still isn't London like it is hard to find an equivalent
0: yeah there's, there's not many things where like the most ridiculous shit you can ever think of actually exists in real life and it's here <laughs> yeah you definitely do take it for granted after being here for a while
1: I also what I also love about London is like um, I flat met his girlfriend she's American and met a lot of yanks at work obviously yeah um, and like I meant to go but it was during covid so all my flights got fucked but anyway the point i'm trying to make is like they were telling me all about their experiences of living in new york or what the city's like there yeah and how like they'll go to um, um um go around the parks in new york and no park they go to can they actually unwind and like relax from it's all private parks right in no the parks like none of them are large enough oh yeah to offset the noise disturbance <laughs> yeah so even yeah. when you're like in the very like center of a park Or, like, as far away from the road as possible, you're next to another road. Or, you know, and they're, like, it's too intense. And there, people, every weekend, like, i probably go away maybe once every three weeks or something. Like, fairly common. But in New York, it would be every weekend people leave. Yeah. And that's the standard, because it's just so intense. I can get that, Um, yeah. And, you know, the classic, if they're rich enough, they go to the
0: Hamptons. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: they were like, what we loved, What they loved about London was that there were areas you could go to that felt, that were more suburban. There are even places like here, like Zone 1, yeah. Zone 2, which are a lot quieter, right? I mean, Hyde Park's dead silent. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that is something I like about London. Like, where I currently live is very suburban. I'm sure, it takes a bit longer to get into the centre and everything, but it does feel like I'm basically in the, like, it's dead quiet. It's quieter than my dad's house in the countryside.
0: It's a nice way to unwind after, like, the busiest fucking week possible. <laughs> I mean having that dead quiet probably helps yeah, yeah
1: it does and I think that's what's, that's what's nice about London it's like there are very like concentrated areas you know the city of London central areas yeah. but it is diffused isn't it like there are areas which are less populated
0: yeah so I think we're nearing the end here <laughs>
1: we're like an hour and
0: 15 minutes through so we're, we're going to call it here uh, thank you for coming thanks for having me anytime anytime hope you enjoyed the whiskey
1: yeah it was very good thank you we drank about half of it so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah more to come more to come Alright, hope you guys enjoyed this, and I'll see you guys next time.